Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Hey, Intimates. How's your mental wellness doing today? Have you been getting enough self-care? I've been somewhat sick myself and probably am going to cough my way through this episode. Our conversation this episode will focus on mental wellness in relationships and how trauma can disrupt that mental wellness and the intimacy that relies on it. Our guest, Chelsea Blair, is an already published social work undergrad who identifies as an activist and who is currently doing some cutting-edge work in pioneering accountability processes for alternative sex communities and their leaders and educators. She is currently an expert volunteer on the Franklin Vaux Survivor Support Team, and as a content warning this episode on a tangent separate from any allegations against Vaux, we may talk about intimate partner violence and murder. For now... Let's just talk about better mental health. Queer lady type, femme, staunch feminist, anarchistically leaning, um, although practicing is hard because <laughs> capitalism. Um, <laughs> yeah, those things. I think that I identify with those things. Yeah. And interestingly, I would, I would agree that practicing anarchism um, is really hard under capitalism, not because I personally oppose capitalism, but because capitalism opposes um, a lot of things around choice. Yes. Like a lot of things are very um, regulated, whether they're regulated directly or whether they're regulated recklessly, Yeah, which is to say by market forces. Yeah, that's true. But I say that as someone who, un un the unlikely person who happens to be capitalist leaning, because mm -hmm. I will just own that, that I'm capitalist leaning. Cool. Let's talk about mental wellness. Okay. Um, how have you come to see your relationship with mental wellness? Um, as a bit of a slog. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, let's see. Wellness is a complicated word. Um, I think that like, I mean, I think that that's like a really like a good word to use to describe it. That's like less medicalized than otherwise yeah. things tend to be about mental health. Yeah. Cause either we say medical mental illness or we say mental health, like mm -hmm. a lot of it tends to revolve around our healthcare system. Whereas mm -hmm. when we start talking about mental wellness, a lot of people think self care, they think like, Oh, what's my relationship with myself looking like right now in terms of like, how stressed am I? Mm -hmm. And like, have I been taking the bubble baths I need to take? Have I been reading in bed alone? Have yeah. I been? Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, like it, it, when we, on the subject of self-care, um, I think that that is a very individualized kind of idea a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of what we are, uh, ascribing to needing more self-care could be more about community care. Mm, interesting. Um, we live in a world that is very like centered on the individual, um, 
and like leaning more toward uh, group wellness might be uh, smart. Yeah, I mean, diversifying kind of how we how we cope. I think when we were talking about mental wellness specifically, having a social support system, some kind of social network. Yeah. I look at that as a large part of my own mental wellness practices. Totally. Um, I focus, I focused my life like long before I started thinking about this in like context of politics, uh, on relationships. They've Mm -hmm. always been like, my relationships have always been my priority, uh, which makes me not a very good capitalist. Um, <laughs> that's true, but it makes me a very good, like lady type. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, but also, um, I think that I have benefited greatly from the relationships that I put a lot of energy into maintaining. Um, so I don't feel like that energy has been misplaced. Totally. I feel in some ways really similarly, mm-hmm. um, whether it was like when I was like eight years old having like that crucial moment where I saw on television that most women preferred chocolate to having sex. Mm-hmm. And I asked my dad, like, why would that be the case? Like all the messages I'm getting are that sex is this amazing thing that is the culmination of all of these awesome awesomenesses. Mm-hmm. So why is it that so many women, according to this commercial, prefer chocolate to sex? And my dad said to me, well, I think a lot of men just don't really care about the experience women have during sex. Mm-hmm. And like, he said that really honestly, as just like, yeah, I think this is probably the reason. Yeah, that was my experience for a large part of my um, history mm. as a like person having sex. Right. Yeah. Was just focusing on another person's pleasure. Yeah. Not having your experience really focused on. Yeah. And whether or not um, the sex was air quotes good. <laughs> right. Was contingent on whether or not the other person was satisfied by it. Mm. That for me that your role in sex was more satisfying someone else than actually being like an active yeah. participant for you mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i trotted along like that for a long time that's a not an uncommon experience mm-hmm. i would dare say it's a common experience mm-hmm. yeah um and i actually uh like i'm queer but i have relationships with men rarely now and the times that i do have relationships with men um the men that i find I have the best relationships with in a sexual context are ones that also have found themselves to prior, like they have been focusing on prioritizing the needs and pleasure of the other person. So then there's reciprocity. Right. Um, as opposed to it becoming like one sided one way or the other. Right. Because both parties are focused on the other parties. Mm-hmm. So at least even if it's not ideal, mm-hmm. cause we're not like taking care of ourselves for each other. We're taking care of each other for ourselves, mm-hmm. which feels like very inverted and very weird in mm-hmm. terms of power. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but at least it's something that's actually how I, and I mean, it kind of feels it's progress weird. for me. <laughs> it, it feels, it feels weird to say following what you just said. Yeah. Um, but that is, that has been my experience of sex as well. Yeah. Is that a lot of it as a result of that has been focused on pleasing other people. Mm-hmm. And I would partner that with then just having like a physiology that isn't usual mm-hmm. by which I mean, like my body's response to stimulation is just different from mm-hmm. most people. I don't particularly like hand jobs. I don't particularly like blow jobs. And like, these are things that I've been conditioned to believe are like great things. Mm-hmm. Moreover, I'm not that into penis and vagina sex. Mm-hmm. And most, and you can see why I'm a queer man. And so like mm-hmm. most of these things are like the goals. They're mm-hmm. the things that you're conditioned that you should pursue. And I'm like, but I don't want any of those things. Mm-hmm. So like, why am I pursuing them? Yeah. Like sex just looks really different for me. I like different things in sex. Yeah. And to some extent, my healing around power, I've survived um, 
two sexual assaults, although only one of them was quote unquote successful, whatever the fuck that means. Ugh. I'm almost like, I, I just hate the language we have around it. Yeah. It's like successful or like failed is like so yeah, squeaky and to like, me. Yeah. And like, where's the line when it like crosses over from like, right, right. A, like a uh, into sexual assault? Like, yeah. a, a completed sexual assault. Yes. Um, yes. Like, where's the line from molestation? Yeah. Which is what most people would call my first sexual assault. I just tend to use the sexual assault language as, like, a blanket term for everything because I feel like it levels the playing yeah, field. Yeah, totally. But, I mean, I was a kid at the time. Mm -hmm. So, like, it could be considered molestation instead of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. But it's, like, that's such a normative way to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. Like, just call it what it is. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway. Anyways. Um, so, like, a lot of my relationship to sex is a relationship to power. Right. Because, like, I don't know how it could not be after you've had, like, an experience of sex that is an experience of power and violence. It's really hard to see sex, I think, at least for me, I shouldn't say that as a general statement, but for me, it's really hard to see sex outside of the context of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. Um, and I think that the, the successful relationships that I've had um, that include sex... Uh, are the ones in which um, that differential is noticed and taken care of. Right. Um, that there's sensitivity to it um, and that we're both kind of like looking at like where we sit and what we want and right. um, are like mindful, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, of yeah, those I things. Yeah, that. Mm -hmm. uh, we started on mental wellness. How did we get here? <laughs> um, well, I mean, trauma is a lot in a lot of ways an extension of mental wellness. I'm yes. curious to ask about the way the relationship you see between like society's perceptions of mental wellness and like a lot of the discoveries that you've sort of had for yourself or aha moments or like useful advice or stuff you want to pass along. So I'm like a settler Canadian white lady and mm -hmm. I think that a lot of my constructs around mental wellness had to do with uh, healthy maintenance of boundaries and like maintaining some semblance of self-care and um, monitoring how much stress I put myself under, um, but also like uh, my earning power, like whether I'm mentally well is directly correlated with how much money I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which really sucks. Um, and I like after doing some uh, Aboriginal studies and education around indigenous <sighs> models of like more holistic wellness, like mind, mm -hmm. body, spirit, land, and those things, medicine mm -hmm. wheel type things. Yeah. Um, I actually recently have come around to like accepting spirituality as a quotient that's important in maintaining personal wellness and mental wellness. Mm. Um, I like have methods of developing not like not proven or tangible constructs that help me uh with my emotional and mental well-being yeah that um, that makes sense to me i mean a lot of emotional well-being is framing for me mm -hmm, for sure and i can totally see how constructs that are quote-unquote not provable are really useful in framing yeah um and i am a feminist hammer and everything's a nail um, <laughs> sure. which is to say that like, I see a lot of, um, power imbalance and gendered power differential in a lot of aspects of my lived experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and in order for me to like move about in the world as a very feminine, 
um, person, I like have to come up with ways to like construct the things that I'm good at as powerful and construct right. the things that I'm not good at as just like as okay. Right. Um, and could you just give like a few quick examples of each? So one, like a really blatant example would be the capitalism piece. Like I'm sure. not very good at capitalism. Like you're not very good at earning money or I'm, charging money. Yeah. I'm not very good at charging what I'm worth. Um, right, right. and I'm not very good at asking people to pay me for the work that I do. Ugh. Um, yeah, preach that. yeah. And so <clears throat> I've lived pretty, uh, barely making it for a long time. Um, which is by like a standard of extreme privilege. Like we live mm. in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, and this is a very expensive city. So like barely making it is still doing pretty well on like a, a broader sense. Thing, sure. Yeah. Even in a Canadian sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm cognizant of that, but also, um, it just like, there's a low key anxiety around money that I have. Yeah. And also like, I can't seem to demand more for myself. I mean, to some extent, you're also working class, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting how I find, like, the people that I interview that tend to be, like, working class tend to be the most cognizant of people that have less. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because most people who are working class have had that brush with not having enough. Mm -hmm. And it really sensitizes you to, like, oh, fuck, like, I was pretty close to being really disenfranchised. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's entirely true. Um doesn't take much. Yeah. No, it doesn't take much at all. Um, and I'm lucky. I'm very, very, very lucky. I've had a lot of close brushes with like serious poverty and serious like uh, um, states of mental unwellness that yeah. have like almost put me in really dangerous, uh, impoverished positions. So yeah. there's that stuff as well. Oh, if it weren't for, um, you know, like very specific benefits that I have in my life, mm -hmm. um, specific kinds of privilege, mm -hmm. um, help that, that my family has been able to offer me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the brushes I've had, like my mental state has definitely in, in other worlds would have absolutely rendered me homeless. Like mm -hmm. my inability to, to work because, you know, I have really intense IBS, which mm -hmm. is to some extent possibly related to my anxiety mm -hmm. um, or the fact that I'm just too anxious to leave the house sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I have to plan to be at work half an hour early just to get there 15 minutes early. Mm -hmm. Cause I know that unless I'm really committed to being there half an hour early, I'm going to be there like five minutes late. Yeah. It's like the discomfort of getting fired needs to exceed the discomfort of leaving my house. Yeah. And like I, in terms of mental wellness things, like I, uh, identify with attention deficit, uh, hyperactivity disorder as a thing that I live with. Um, and I only like recently adopted that identity, um, because I just read enough stuff online and did enough quizzes <laughs> to establish that I probably should accept this as a thing. But I've also come up with a pile of coping strategies because I'm mm. a woman. And so it doesn't like, it never manifests in like girls the way that it does in boys really. Yeah. Um, Educate me if you'd like. Sure. Um, the way that um, girls move through the world on the front, like people socialize this as women, I should yeah. say, or people socialize as girls, yeah. uh, move through the world in our like younger lives. It's very, there's a lot of policing. Definitely. Like, I think there's a lot of policing for everyone. Um, and a lot of the policing that goes on for girls is about being quieter and being more polite and like, um, 
minimizing. And so I quickly learned very young that like my penchant for like being loud and energetic and like um, rambunctious and all of those things were not appropriate for like my gender programming. Right. So I learned very fast that I had to control that stuff. Right. Um, and has since spent a lot of my life with a lot of anxiety about, um, what my impulses to, how my impulses are to behave and like what I actually do. Mm. Um, so now I have a lot of coping strategies. I utilize a lot of different like digital methods of like keeping track of everything. I am a Google calendaring wizard and that is actually how anything gets done. Right. Like I have to write it down Yeah. or else it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and it, as my stress levels increase, those coping mechanisms that I've like long practiced completely fall down. Right. Um, and that's so, disruptive. Yeah. It's very disruptive. If I'm under, uh, the more stress I'm under, the more blatantly dysfunctional I become, I think, which is yeah. true for most people. Yeah. I would agree with that. But it, the way that the, uh, manifests for me is very much about executive functioning and, those sorts of things. Yeah. And I think there are going to be some of us that are dealing with more mental healthy stuff that sort of fall into those patterns of like, it doesn't take much to make us less functional because mm -hmm. we're already, we're already implementing so many coping strategies mm -hmm. just to get to a normal level of function every day. Yeah. I've like, I've had this conversation where I try to describe like how much of my brain is taken up with like making sure what I'm doing is appropriate for the Ugh. situation. Um, <laughs> I empathize with that a lot. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've decided it's 30%. I've decided that like 30% of my total CPU at any given time is like, <laughs> I can't tell going if that's high the, or low, going through the Rolodex of like, is this okay? Like, what are my options on what to do at say right now? And like going through the Rolodex of all of the different things and eventually landing on something like measured and like level and what right. have you. Right, right. But it's a like, that's it's a lot. That's a lot, and that's not like the background stuff that everybody does all the time. Right. This is like present in your cognitive mm -hmm. window. Like mm -hmm. you're you're noticing all these things in real time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely had a lot of um, antisocial quote unquote behaviors, like mm -hmm. behaviors that are disruptive in a group, or I take up too much space, mm -hmm. and like I'm like painfully aware of some of these things. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes if I go to a social event, like start to finish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like, like my impulse is to never stop talking <laughs> and that's not actually like socially acceptable. <laughs> but what I'm hearing is that's a coping strategy for anxiety. Yeah. That you just always want to be talking cause it's less threatening. Yeah. Um, I and I, it, yeah, it takes a lot of energy for me to just like not talk while someone else is talking or right, like, right when it's not appropriate in a group, like a broader group social situation. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I do the same thing. The hyperactivity thing. <laughs> it's oh, weird. <laughs> really interesting to know. Cause yeah. I definitely, it's not that I love the sound of my own voice, but I like the calm of having people be interested in me. It's mm -hmm. like constantly wanting to be seen and validated mm -hmm. in ways that I just feel deficient, like mm -hmm. to make up for how deficient I feel. Mm -hmm. like I just constantly want to be validated. Mm -hmm. And like, I've learned that's not conducive to like healthy group interactions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There needs to be reciprocity. I hear <laughs> in validation. <laughs> well, so the interesting, and then it's good. <laughs> the interesting thing about that is, 
I get burned doing that. Mm-hmm. If there's reciprocity and validation, like a lot of my friends will be like, I don't need your fucking permission. Because, you know, a lot of them are dealing with different baggage than I'm dealing with. Right. Interesting. Like I've, definitely I've not had... encountered that. I wonder what it is like. Well, part of that is me just being mask presenting. Right. I was going to say, like, there's probably some gender shit here. There yeah. usually is. Because, um, yeah, I like do my cheerleader routine. <laughs> yeah, but like I can't. And people love that. But I can't, <laughs> yeah. I can't do that with women that are like doing activisty stuff or feel burnt out. I can't be giving them permission. I can't, like, I can be supportive of being like, that sounds like awesome work. Yeah. But I have to be really careful not to say anything evaluative, like really cautious about how I, like how I use yeah. words. Yeah, I can get that. Yeah. And I, like, I'm stuff. just like taking note of, um, yeah, the times that I've heard from men that I'm doing good work and the times that I've heard from other women that I'm doing good work. Um, and how or that, whatever that might be and how that like felt how in your lands. body. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a hard time taking compliments anyway. So as like a general rule. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just hard. It's just hard to sit there and say, thank you. <sighs> it's also hard. <laughs> it's also hard to appreciate that. Like when someone says thank you to you, mm-hmm. like internalizing that can be really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I very much got a lot of programming about just like, never celebrating myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got some feedback from a friend one time a while ago that basically went something like, you don't really talk if you're doing well. <laughs> like I don't hear from you. Just bump your mic. If you're like, yeah, it's fine. If you're good. Yeah. And like, what's that about? Like, why don't you talk about how good things are? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, huh, I don't know. Probably reasons. <laughs> Probably lots of social reasons. Yeah. Um, including like a virtue found in modesty. Oh, definitely. Um, <coughs> I feel like I'm constantly doing that. Mm-hmm. Like the, I'm, I'm so careful now cause I've been burned so often mm-hmm. to be like as cautious as possible about mm-hmm. taking up too much space. And I still take up a lot of space and I still talk a lot cause I have a lot of needs for being seen and being validated. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing that work in therapy. Mm-hmm. So for all you folks listening, they're like, why don't you folks deal with these things? It's like we're currently. <laughs> oh, yeah. Going to therapy every two weeks. <laughs> I'm, I'm engaged in the like salvaging of the Titanic operation. It's yeah. Just, it's going to take a while. Okay. Yeah. Give me some time. And I think you and I have a good dialogue too, because we're both like talkers. Totally. And so we're able to like meet at a place of like, we yes. both want to talk a lot. And I don't mind when you talk over me and you yeah. seem to be totally fine when I talk over you. And yeah. it's like, this was sort of how I grew up was in this kind of like maelstrom of like, if you wanted to say something, you had to fucking slide it sideways yeah. into a conversation and then kick it until it went in. Yeah. That's not appropriate for all folks. It's not appropriate for intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. It's not appropriate for intimate relationships where your partner is introverted. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> uh, all things I've dealt with. Are these things you've dealt with? Yes. Um, the interrupting piece. But, like, the times that I've, like, I learned early that interrupting was inappropriate. And so, like, even when the other, like, if someone else interrupts me, I'll be like, no, you go ahead. Right. Right, right. Because, <laughs> like... I don't know actually who started to, who interrupted who at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also really tried to practice when someone else is talking to just like bite my tongue to just like calm my shit down mm-hmm. and remember that like their voice is just as important as mine in this conversation. Yes. And that's very hard. Yeah, it is hard. That's mm-hmm. true. Okay. So <laughs> the next question was about strategies that we use to cope with trauma in relationship. Oh, huh. talking. <laughs> which we just went over like quite a bit. Um, 
talking and slowing the fuck down. I can't like emphasize that enough. I like, and I, as a person with a like brain that is relatively hyperactive, yeah, this is as like something I work on all the time. Um, and I also, yeah, I like, I encourage other folks to do the same. It's just like slow down and like, look at like, look at what you're doing and look at like why you might be doing it. Um, and like, give yourself a minute, give your body and your brain a minute to acclimatize to what's happening, regardless of what it is. Like, are we talking about sex now or not? (laughs) (laughs) Are we Um, talking about intimacy? (laughs) I think we are. I think we are talking just in relationship in general. Right. Um, so personally, I think that like part of the reason I'm just noticing this now, part of the reason why, um, when we start to talk about trauma, I start to talk about sex Right. is because a lot of my trauma is like sexual is sexual. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and something that I've learned about myself as a traumatized person is that, like, when momentum starts to pick up right. um, in a sexual situation, then it's hard. Like, basically, the more momentum there is, the harder it is for me to put the brakes on. Right. So I lose my ability to dissent. Um, I just spilled tea all over my crotch. But oh I'm, no! I'm good. Are you okay? Did it's, you burn yourself? No, I. So fortunately, the tea was at almost room temperature. Oh, so excellent! Okay, all is well. I'm um, just uncomfortably wet. <laughs> Do you want to go get a towel? No, I, I'm good with this. Okay. I, I will air dry. It wasn't. It did not get super deep. Okay, but. good. Um. So. At, yeah, as momentum increases in a sexual situation for me, my ability to say I need to stop is gravely debilitated um and i know this about myself now so i'm able to go into sexual situations saying like i need this to move at like a snail's pace right um and like that's gonna help me gain trust and then later when like we have built a pile of trust then there's no need for the snail's pace right um, but that, that like, and I, like, I read a piece about demisexuality recently mm-hmm. that really like, I didn't like, I've definitely read other stuff about demisexuality in the past. Um, and now I'm starting to identify a little bit more because, it, because of the like needing things to go at a snail's pace in order for my body and my nervous system to deal with what's happening, um, in terms of physicality with other people. Yeah. That's really good advice. And like, it it also means that like, oftentimes I'm the one that's like, this needs to slow down, and I have to really diligently like maintain some boundaries about that. Um, and that's hard. Like, people want to get wrapped up in like chemistry, mm. and every time I've gotten wrapped up in chemistry, I've gotten very hurt. Right. So I don't, <coughs> I don't trust like chemistry to keep me safe. Right. Um, so the relationships that I have now that are sexual in nature are very specific and not specific. That's not the right word. Um, intentional. Oh, that's such a good word. Um, like maybe even there wasn't any sexual chemistry to begin with and we like built it deliberately block by block. Yeah. Like this works for me. That works for Mm -hmm. me. 
and like got more um, like got more exploratory as we developed the trust. So literally the next question was how do you talk about trauma with or coach your partners in being better support humans to change how trauma impacts your relationship, which you just like slugged out of the park. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff I just said. All that stuff you just said. Um, it's funny because like I have received feedback from people who are close to me that like my ability to slow down enough to not be distracted by like every little thing is like really not great and i know this about myself Mm. um and and yet like i have become very good at talking to people about moving slower in sexual situations right um And I think that, like, yeah, I think that eventually I will be able to integrate that into the rest of my life. Or I won't, because (laughs) deficit, like, ADD. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. You know? (laughs) Um, And maybe that's fine. Um, Anyway, the, like, the end game on that uh, thought process, I think, is that... Uh, a lot of healing can occur within sex. I think that often we focus on how much hurt and how much harm can occur. Um, and I think that it like it's important to also note that a lot of he- healing can occur too. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. In fact, as an extension of that conversation, I would say in BDSM, like, yeah, like a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and suffering can happen through mm-hmm. um, acts of physical aggression or violence. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of healing to be found in consensual, safe versions of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you have any advice for folks who might be experiencing the effects of recent trauma or folks who might be experiencing? You know what? I'll just let you answer that question and I'll ask a second one later. So I think, like, I don't... Hmm. I mean, it's such a tough question to answer. Yeah, I, like, every single time I experience um, some kind of, I'm going to call it intimate violation. Sure. um, The rest of the things that have happened to me kind of, like, hit me like a tsunami. Right. Um, So It's cumulative. Yeah, it's it's definitely accumulative. And uh, I think that that, like, I think that that reinforces the point of, like, consent and negotiation being, like, extremely important and not assuming that everyone is on equal footing with which to negotiate consent and um, engaging with other people in those ways. Um, Because, like, what could trigger someone can bring up all the things that they've gone through. And that's part, like, that's part of why it's really important to, like, negotiate with trauma-informed kind of uh, brain space, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. I'm I'm definitely seeing a lot of parallels to, like, BDSM, where, like, a lot of folks like to follow this neat script for sex. Yeah. That, like, sex is between a man and a woman, and, like, this is how it happens, and these are the acts that are involved. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to talk about anything, because that would be embarrassing, and it would be yeah. somehow unsexy, and, like, yeah. all of these myths. But that as soon as you involve trauma, everything gets complicated. It's mm-hmm. like a pre-existing injury. Yeah, I spent a lot of my, like, life as a person having sex very dissociated um, because I was just kind of trying to muscle through, 
mm-hmm. what was happening and also prioritizing the other person's needs and comfort over my own. Right. Um, and so the fact of the matter is I have a pile of experiences where like I was having sex that I didn't really want to have. Um, and now I'm like really, really intent. It sounds so ridiculous when I say it out loud. Like I actually said this to my partner not too long ago. I was like, I'm just, I don't want to have any more sex that I don't actually want to be having. And she was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, don't do that. Like, don't do it at all, at all. Like, please like, stop. Yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, it like, it sounds ludicrous when but you say it like that, but that's the, like, that's yeah. like a large part of like woman type experience <clears throat> is having a lot of sex you don't actually want to be having. Um, I think that's common. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I've definitely had sex I didn't want to have as well. So yeah, like, for can, sure. And I'm not even like, I'm not a woman, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's like, it can often be like a person experience. I think it's more common in femme types for sure. Mm-hmm. But I've also had a lot of shaping, socializing slash whatever experiences that are not that departed Mm -hmm. from what a lot of women can resonate with like being sexually assaulted for example or Mm -hmm. constantly being pushed into a gender mold that i just really didn't fit in Mm -hmm. and just like railing against that and then having like most of my experiences with men be experiences of violence where men were like calling me a faggot punching me those kinds of things yeah like that's typically what almost all of my relationships with men look like yeah so like coming out of a lot of that into more adulthood like post-university it was like I mean, even in university to some extent, but it re- very much looked like men aren't safe. It's mm-hmm. really hard to form meaningful relationships with men. And um, <clears throat> at the same time, trying to be mindful of all the other socialization I'd had that mm-hmm. might be harmful to women that I was interacting with. Like, mm-hmm. There's a lot of conflicting stuff. And then there's the fact that like I just don't resonate with like a lot of dude-ish gendery things. Mm-hmm. Like I really like colors. I like coordinating things. I like having my nails done. Like, mm-hmm. I like wearing lipstick, especially if I'm going to like events. Like, yeah, definitely. Right. Um, so in terms of recent like traumatic instances, right. uh, like letting yourself, re- like letting yourself reflect um, on that compounded accumulation of instances or of events Mm. um like letting yourself look at that trying to like trying to let your nervous system um calm down uh in the face of that because it's massive for a lot of people i think Mm. um i've been reading a lot of things about um like bodily effects of stress and trauma um and Yeah, it keeps coming back to this piece of like allowing yourself to complete a stress cycle. Right. Um, So finding ways to kind of um, release the stress from your body because if you don't, it gets trapped and then you get sick. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, finding healthy ways to relieve not the stressor, but the stress that exists inside of yourself. Um, Right. And and finding a way to finish coming down from the stress response. Yes, entirely. And I've heard things like um, mindfulness can be really helpful with this, mm-hmm. self-care, et cetera. Yeah. Um, there are, like, you'll feel it. You'll feel it physically. It's like um, a bit of a shudder or like a sigh, um, mm-hmm. like on a kind of nervous level uh, or on a physiological level. Um, and for lots of different people, it's lots of different things. Like, I find crying to be very cathartic. I also find... Um, dancing and um writing to be really cathartic things personally yeah 
Um, but lots of different people have expressed to me lots of different things that give them that feeling that like the shutter sigh kind of feeling like literally your body just sort of shakes a little bit because you've like released some tension inside of it. Yeah. Some like deep seated, hard to label tension. Mm -hmm. I also have, um, a guide to writing impact statements, Mm -hmm. which honestly, I think that they can be a helpful tool, even if you're not giving them to anyone. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have a, honestly, I don't have a lot of experience with confronting the people who have, um, like violated my consent. I have a handful of experiences, but like the majority of my experiences are not that. Um, and I, like, I want to have more experience in that because I want to be able to repair, like I want there to be repair. I mean, ideally with, I'm sorry, the way that, the way that that landed for you and you were like, I want to have more experience with that was like. I think I know what she means. <laughs> like, I want to have more experience with be, with opportunities to repair when a violation like that has happened. And I'm coming at that from a place of, like, I don't expect me, like, I don't expect myself to, to like, stop experiencing consent violation, like, from here on out. I just don't. I do a lot of stuff that puts me in a lot of positions where sorts, those sorts of things are going to happen. Um and you can't stop living your really life. And that really sucks. Yeah. yeah, I'm not going to stop living my life. I'm not going to stop going to techno shows periodically by myself. Oh my God, d- dudes on dance floors. Yeah. Honestly, stop touching me. <laughs> yeah, and stop touching women. Just stop touching them, especially at a show where it's like, we're all here for the music. This is not Granville Street. We're not here to pick up. Right. <laughs> like, we're here to dance. Don't touch women. <laughs> At least not without their consent, which, yeah. let's be honest, in 90% of the cases at those shows, you don't have. Yeah, exactly. <coughs> um, yeah, I've had lots lots of things happen on dance floors. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. And yet, I think it's a super common. It is very, yeah. I And I watch, like, I watch other women experience the same thing in the spaces. Oof. Yeah. And I imagine that lands for you pretty intensely. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had lots of conversations with uh, DJ friends and producer friends and event organizer friends about how to uh, create better dance floor etiquette, basically. Yeah. Um, and get that to go to a like ground level. I've had like men and women grind up against me on dance floors very uncomfortably in both mm-hmm. cases sometimes, and it's just like I'm not not here for that mm-hmm. with my friends. Yeah, the last time something happened to me was a woman, actually. Um, and I like I froze and my male partner was standing next to me and he was like like he was like, Oh, that's happening and then he looked at my face and saw that I was blatantly unhappy with what was happening and he like he it took him like a couple of beats to realize that like this wasn't welcome and then it took him a couple beats to get over the like, Oh, it's a woman doing this shit, now what do I do? Um and like, otherwise he says that he would have intervened and I would have like, I told him in the future, like that he absolutely should, uh, because I freeze and then things are happening and I'm not reacting, um, which is a very common response. Um, yeah. yeah. And like I had, I had a conversation with that person afterward that actually went really well. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. She was very like apologetic and, uh, said that she had realized as soon as she did it, that that wasn't okay. And and what have you. So that was good. That's positive. Yeah. I mean, all we can hope for is people becoming slightly less harmful every mm-hmm. day. Harm reduction. Harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So that was good advice. I liked a lot of what you said. Not that it matters what I think. 
Right? Fuck me. It's what the audience thinks, right? Um, and presumably there are a lot of folks that are listening to what you're saying. And I'm, my perspective is it's probably landing really well. Awesome. Yeah. Um, it's super useful just to have folks talk about, like, what do you do? Because, mm-hmm. like, trauma is such a taboo topic that, mm-hmm. like, people don't openly talk about it. Mm-hmm. And they're afraid of, like as as i am that people will look at the title of an episode and go oh i don't want to listen to that Mm -hmm. and clearly by virtue that at least more than zero humans are listening right now Mm -hmm. then that isn't entirely true Mm -hmm. clearly somebody somewhere is interested yeah so talking about trauma i'm interested to talk about Oh, you just kind of covered so much of this. You're so great at anticipating where I'm going to go with the conversation. <laughs> or maybe my questions are really good at anticipating where you're going to go. I don't know. <laughs> Clearly, we're on the same wavelength. Right. So I was going to ask about the impact of distant traumas. If a trauma comes back from like a trigger or an event in an intimate relationship. So whether or not that trigger was in the intimate relationship doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But now you've got a person who's experiencing, say, flashbacks mm-hmm. or triggers or some other effective distant trauma and you've got a partner of any gender that's mm-hmm. just like i don't know what to do to support you do you have like any advice for folks that are in that sort of a situation as to how to approach distant trauma yeah um as always pre-negotiation um like making a plan uh if you know like if the person <clears throat> that you're in a thing with knows that they may experience some kind of flashback or like just experience like a physiological response to what's happening currently that like harkens to old tapes um in their head um like having some kind of protocol around like like checking in regularly or like i know um like one of my partners now is very good at like if like even if i like tense up in a way that he's like not accustomed to He'll be like, are you good? Like, he'll, like, check in with me mm-hmm. um, and stop things, uh, which is great. Um, and, it, like, sometimes I need that, like, uh, I, like, sometimes the external reference point of, like, hey, I noticed something shifted with you. Um, and just paying attention, like, paying attention to the person you're doing a thing with. And, like, if, like, the air in the room seems to change or something. Yeah. Or if the way they're responding changes suddenly, um, until you like have a really good understanding of how your body language works, um, checking in more than not <laughs> is like huge. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just like always making it really safe to say, "Hey, we need to stop." Yeah. Um, All of that sounds like BDSM. I know we're yeah. not talking about BDSM, but you literally said protocol. You said checking in, mm-hmm. you said paying attention to body language, and mm-hmm. you said making it okay to stop. Mm-hmm. And those are like, that is the building blocks of getting to doing BDSM. So yeah, it's really totally. interesting that you're like, all of these systems that have already existed yeah. and have already been developed yeah. and have been like, they're taught regularly yeah. in the BDSM context. Yeah. We should just take those ideas that work there for yeah. these situations where we're not sure where people want to go mm-hmm. and just import it for regular sex, quote yeah. unquote, regular, quote unquote, sex, whatever yeah. those the words mean. Yeah, right. Because we don't know where people want to go, especially yeah. if they've experienced trauma. Exactly. Um, Yeah, I think it's super important to have some kind of plan. Um, And, like, there are lots of people out there in the world fucking (laughs) that, like, have no self-understanding of this sort of thing. And, like, that I don't I honestly don't know what to say about that at all. Um, Like, the the self-awareness piece is huge. Um, 
and we can kind of move through like healing in sexual relationships the traumas that we've incurred in sexual relationships once we have an awareness of the fact that they're affecting what we're doing um and i like i don't really know what to do prior to that awareness uh so that sucks <laughs> self-awareness is the hardest piece yeah it's like pay attention to your own body but then you're like but i but i am paying attention to my own body it's yeah like, no no but more <laughs> but if you've literally never existed within your own body because right. you've been floating about three inches outside of it because it's not like because your body was like not a safe space for you yeah um As then you the don't even know what that feels like right and you don't even know anything's wrong right um so my brother said wrong. something air quotes wrong my brother said something really interesting to me the other day mm -hmm. um by which i mean a couple weeks ago because that's what the other day means in english mm. <clears throat> um he said to me like the notion that my life could like like that i could essentially i'm going to paraphrase here mm -hmm. um but the notion that i could like essentially for lack of a better term run off and join the circus or that i could go and apply to start a business tomorrow mm -hmm. or that i could like phone this government agency like all of those mundane to ridiculous tasks are equally probable. Mm -hmm. I have this sense that my whole life is surreal. And like a lot of these words started landing for me. And I was like, I know that feeling. And then I was sitting in therapy and I mentioned it to my counselor. My counselor's like, oh, that's like characteristic dissociation. Mm -hmm. like, that's really typical of depression. Like, of course that makes sense. You'd be experiencing that. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, Oh, I just like had never made the the connection from mm -hmm. a sense of a surreal life. Like, I just feel like anything's probable. I could be homeless tomorrow, mm -hmm. or like that was the anxiety talking. Yeah, I um I totally relate to that. And the ways that I've the languages that I've used to describe it has been about like uh, like an awareness that like the floor under my feet could disappear any minute. Mm. Um. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's part of me that's always prepared for that. And ever, then we get into that thing about the 30% the thirty percent of my CPU. Right. Like that's, part, like that's also taking used. up some space is that there's an awareness that like everything around um, what I have established and built in my life could completely disappear at any yeah, point. I feel exactly the same way. Um, and my, like my wife and also my sister-in-law, my sister-in-law and I had a good conversation about this and she was just like, God, that sounds exhausting. And I was like, yeah, it's really exhausting. But also like, doesn't that make us a little more free, like <laughs> optimistic nihilism and all that? <laughs> That's basically Rick and Morty in a nutshell. Yes. Which I love Rick and Morty so much. It is, say, it what, is, say what about me you will based on that <laughs> like the yeah, idealization of like a psycho villain and his poor anxious grandson <laughs> yeah and it's it's not without it's highly problematic yeah content sometimes and mm -hmm. hilarious like yeah. i find as a general rule the idea of nihilism and not really giving a shit about anything and mm -hmm. having nihilism be somehow freeing from all the mental health stuff is just like yeah and i cool. like i I don't think that anyone that knows me well enough to be able to say a thing about me would ever say that I don't care. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how to like, uh, put a veneer of like high care quotient on top of nihilism, but I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, like, I, like I'm aware of the fact that the floor can disappear from underneath my feet at any given moment. And that's going to make me really sad and I'm going to cry about it. And then I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something else. Mm -hmm. Yep. Resilience. 
Yeah. And she res- says with a hand wave. And, resi- <laughs> and resilience looks different to different people. Yeah, totally. And I, I definitely like recognize how hard resilience is to practice. Yeah. And it is a practice. It is. A lot of people look at resilience as like a trait, like, oh, what's this mystery that some people mm-hmm. are resilient to trauma and other people aren't? And I'm like, I feel like just like courage, it's not a trait you have. Mm-hmm. It's a practice. It's practice and it's cultivated. Yeah. You make a choice to, to practice courage yeah. when you choose to face the bear. Mm-hmm. Entirely. Know, you're practicing courage. You have a choice and you're making that choice a way that mm-hmm. you decide is courageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, my therapist said something just like... Not like devastating in the sense that like it really like cemented a little bit of a lack of control in terms of like how I turned out as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> she said something to the effect of like I've like I've looked at your family history and I've looked at your personal history and I've looked at like all the things you've been through over the course of your life that have like really been setbacks, like notable things that should have just like knocked you on the ground and you just kept getting back up and. Also, you haven't ended up with, like, some diagnosable, serious personality disorder. And, like... (laughs) Yeah. um, And a completely, like, a bunch of behaviors that are entirely, like, societally maladaptive. Like, you've somehow stayed within the realm of, like, acceptable um, ethical behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and you like care about other people and you like do a bunch of things to make sure that you're caring for other people. Wow. Like there's some, something is in your DNA in there. That's like just resilient AF. Yeah. Um, and she also like, she's Brazilian. Um, and she connected that to like not whiteness. <laughs> she's like, you look very white. There's something in there. Wow. <laughs> Cause like, you're like you're adaptable and i was like thank you and also ouch (laughs) i mean i don't think adaptability has anything to do with race yeah i i mean i think people of color have had more opportunity to like demonstrate yeah and like to be fair like how many arguments do you get into with white people where they're like i didn't like i'm not racist like you know yeah um just accept it's a soup. We're all sitting in the soup. Yeah, we're, we're all, all sitting in the soup. Like You've soup. got some racism in your teeth. Yeah, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's not ideal, but it's okay. Yeah. And you can choose to do work throughout mm-hmm. your life consistently trying to be a little less racist every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that goes for POCs as well. Like, we internalize tons of racism. Mm-hmm. It just is what it is. Yeah, white supremacy yeah. is in us all. We internalize white supremacy. Yeah. And we say that because we want to distinguish the racism towards other POCs and ourselves Mm -hmm. from this crazy ass notion of us being specifically racist towards white people. Of Mm -hmm. course, we're using this in an academic sense with capital R racism, Mm -hmm. not lowercase r racism, where people are talking casually about bigotry based on skin color, which is not the same as systemic oppression based on race. Mm -hmm. But this isn't an episode dedicated to talking about racism. (laughs) It's as if we got off topic again. (laughs) Which we tend to do, which is totally fine. Yeah. Honestly, I'm not married to us having like a specific topic that we have to talk about. I just like having like a general theme to tie it together so the poor listeners can sort of make an informed choice of what they're going to be listening to. Yeah. (laughs) Spoilers, it's probably Victor getting off topic. (laughs) Perfect. Like pretty much in every episode. Awesome. But I've been trying really hard to sort of um, focus a little tiny bit more than my usual. Yeah. So we talked a lot about like mental health and trauma mm-hmm. and stayed surprisingly on topic in a yeah, lot of ways. I think so. I'm going to include links for impact statements. And if you have any links you want to include as resources for folks, I'm mm-hmm. totally open to throwing them up on the podcast as well. Yeah. So do you have any, um, any other advice for like um, folks who are currently supporting their partners through trauma? 
Uh, the same, the same, the same thing, advice. which same is advice. like slow down. Uh, we like, like no sudden movements. Um, yeah, <laughs> totally. like, uh, and I, I mean that, um, about like everything, uh, just like slow down and notice what you're doing, slow down and notice why you're doing it. Um, slow down and notice like how your interactions with your person are going. Um, and be prepared to wait. Like, mm-hmm. be prepared mm-hmm. to wait for them to sort out what's going on for them. Um, and, like, wait for them to find a way to communicate with you. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, patience. Yeah, definitely. Slow. <laughs> also, as an anxious person, if I'm, like, jiggling my foot, mm-hmm. um, one of the strategies my counselor gave me was to just intentionally do the exact same gesture. Don't stop doing the gesture, but slow it down to half speed. Mm-hmm. And it, like, helps connect with the part of your brain or psyche that is doing that thing. Mm-hmm. And it helps communicate you're safe because you're doing it very slowly and mm-hmm. intentionally. Mm-hmm. And that was huge for me. Yeah, that sounds huge. I'm into that. Yeah, even, like, if I'm pacing back and forth, just pace at half speed right. in a very intentional way, mm-hmm. like, communicates I'm safe. Awesome. I don't need to run away from something physically. I don't need to get away, like, physically I'm yeah. safe. Yeah, that's an excellent piece of advice. Oh, my God. And if I have a piece of music playing in my head as the soundtrack to my anxiety, if I slow that music down to half speed, it works so well for me. Yeah, slower music. Definitely. Even if it's anxiety-inducing music, if it's super intense music, but it's playing at one quarter speed or one half speed, all of a sudden it's not that intense. Mm-hmm. Neat. Interesting. I'm just taking note of the fact that I listen to most of the books that I listen to on Audible at like 1.25. Oh, man. I wonder I if that's like... Listen to mine at like 1.6. Wow. I would have a hard time with that. I've, I've done books before at 1.8 and 2, and yeah. that's like, that's fast. Yeah, that's really fast. Two, ah. two is really fast, but it also depends on the narrator, mm. because some narrators are really fast mm-hmm. and some are slow. So I'll have some books where like 1.2 is like a really brisk clip, mm-hmm. and then other ones where like 1.6 is a really brisk clip, mm-hmm. and it like just depends on the narrator. Yeah. And other times, the material will be really good material that I, that I don't know really well, mm-hmm. and I really need to slow it down more. Mm-hmm. Other times it'll be like, oh, this is like t- physics 12 and like f- like physics 101 and 102 in a book for the average person. Like I can probably mm-hmm. listen to this at 1.8 speed mm-hmm. and still grasp everything being said in the book because I literally just know most of the content because I've sat through it and mm-hmm. studied it meticulously. Yeah, I feel that way about like feminism. <laughs> You're like, if I have to read a book on feminism, I can just like knock that forward to 1.8 and I'll yeah, be fine. Yeah, totally. And for those who aren't following, this is speeds that you can adjust audiobook playback to. Yeah. Like 1.8 times the normal speed. Mm-hmm. And if you think two times as fast, Oof, there was... Like I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't actually imagine. Like so hearing can... everything. So what's really interesting is the way the beginnings and ends of sound start getting clipped the faster you play things. Oh, okay. And in the case of a blind Google software engineer, um, they recorded what the beginning of their day looked like. And the beginning of their day was like going on to message like boards and forums to check out what people were saying about products. Mm -hmm. But the screen reader had to read the entirety of the internet to them at every page. So building pages that are very accessible means building websites that communicate the right information at the right time to the person um, trying to access the web, whether that's being communicated visually or not. Hmm. Interesting. 
it's a big challenge as a web developer to build really good, responsive, and um, accessible websites. Mm -hmm. I imagine that's true, yeah. But this individual was listening at like 2.8 and three times. Wow. And that was what really got me started on like the ability of the human brain to adapt to how information is incoming mm -hmm. and discern important from not important information mm -hmm. was astounding. Yeah. That's what got me experimenting with like 1.8 and two times. Wow. Yeah. And with boring content, I can do it at 2.2 depending, mm -hmm. but yeah. Interesting. And still catch like most of what's going on, but it's kind of like skimming if you're listening to something at 2.2. Right. Which all academics have to know how to do. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me and You're welcome. talking on the show. Thank you for having mental, me. Mental wellness and trauma. Like, yeah. That's a pretty heavy topic. And congratulations to anyone who's made it to this part in the podcast. Honestly. Thank yes. you. Thank, thank you, you for listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> and if you liked it, tell a friend. And hey, you could even leave us a review and help other intimacy and trauma nerds find us. So yeah. thank you for that. Bye. Bye. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemloopste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.